So Julia uh, Louise Rifers makes some racial faux pas and she has to correct it. And she says, you know, go get me, you know, African-American studies professors. And so there's a scene where she's supposed to have this photo op with all these African-American studies professors and they're all white. And she's like, what the hell's going on? (laughs) And I thought that was the most beautiful description of academia to ever be televised. She's like, so this is white woman who's like, I'm the chair at Howard. And she's like, she's like, what the Welcome back, everyone. Stuck with David Young, the show that I am only hosting because I get paid a lot of money for it, and I only need the money so that when it's time for my kids to go to college, instead of them having a high GPA, I can just donate some money to it. And then, boom, automatic admission. So, anyway, to put the Supreme Court's recent ruling against affirmative action in both an historical and a present day context, I'm joined by the homie, Boston University sociology professor, Sayada Grundy who, as a career academic, has a very unique perspective on how this ruling will impact campuses in the fall. And then, Sai also joins us for Dear Damon, as we answer a question about the very public conversations about Kiki Palmer, Kiki Palmer's baby daddy, and, I don't know, just the state of men in general. All right, y'all. Let's get it. Sayada Grundy is the recently tenured, my nigga got tenure, <laughs> recently tenured professor at Boston University. Sai, what's good? I am good. I just came back from the Berkshires. That was actually really fun. White liberals out there are like aggressively white liberal, like they want to like out liberal each other. It's like really fascinating. I mean, so it was all scholars of Du Bois, but a lot of us that small children. So folks were out there, we're like leading, you know, the children through downtown, walking and get ice cream, walk to the bookstore. The white people are like moving off the sidewalk. It was like some sort of like social reparations. So it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a deleted scene from Get Out. Truly. Like that sounds like something that was left on a cutting room floor. Truly. These are white people who kind of pride themselves on like, oh, you know, this region was always, you know, part of abolition. We've always had, you know, free both African and Afro-Indian, you know, residents. It was fascinating as a study of like white liberalism. Just when you think Massachusetts can't get more liberal, you go to Berkshires. I feel like that's a perfect segue for all I want to talk to you about because you are recently tenured, right? So congratulations on that. Yes. So I can say all sorts, I can say, bitch, what's my favorite word? (laughs) I can say all sorts of stuff right now. And so I guess I just want to know, since your tenure was your tenure, your glasses, your loft, your glasses, <laughs> your life were a product of affirmative action. Yeah, absolutely. And since all that shit's getting reversed, are you going to have to give that all back now? Like, how does it feel to have an entire career? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that is due to affirmative action. And not your own merit, not your own merit. Yeah, yeah, of course. Right, 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 right. But just how's, how does it feel to be one of them people? First of all, I always say, you know, my affirmative action is that I'm not at all better than the other black academics I know. So that's the real affirmative action is that, like, I get to roll with black people who are so much better than me at a number of things, not to mention the ones who are far worse than me. And I I wonder if they wake up taking (laughs) affirmative action for even being able to have the same profession as I do. Um, But, yeah, you know, it's, it's also... In 
you know, academia. So we are like ground zero in terms of higher ed. And this ruling doesn't just affect students. I think there's so much conversation about students, but it really affects the whole of higher education, which includes faculty. So one of the things we do as faculty is we're really aggressive about creating lines, lines meaning creating new appointments for faculty hires. And we already are extremely limited in being able to acknowledge race for creating lines. So for example, I can't say, hey, I want a line for just, you know, a black, queer, uh, gender nonconforming person, right? Mm -hmm. I can't legally do that. I can say I'd like a line for someone who studies black, gender nonconforming, queer people. But that, as we know in academia, doesn't necessarily equate to people who have that identity. So for example, mm -hmm. my favorite scene in the whole series of Beep, which Beep was comedy gold, is when, so Julia uh, Louise Reifers makes some racial faux pas and she has to correct it. And she says, you know, go get me, you know, African-American studies professors. And so there's a scene where she's supposed to have this photo op with all these African-American studies professors and they're all white. And she's like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> and I thought that was the most beautiful description of academia to ever be televised. She's like, so this is white woman who's like, I'm the chair at Howard. And she's like, she's like what the hell? So, yes. <laughs> so, there's been a whole lot of affirmative action in terms of, you know, a whole lot of, as people have heard many times this week, the greatest beneficiary of affirmative action on the hiring end has been white women, and on the uh, admissions end has been white men. So, I, I will, you know, in terms of academia, we've always seen this. We've always seen how people... We have this, you know, lip service somewhat, but, you know, low sort of efforts to do diversity and inclusion. But what white people are counting as diversity, I think this was actually telling how this came out of the private sector. So, you know, some decades back, or it's been decades in the running, Silicon Valley, in terms of how they counted diversity, they would, so, oh, they would say, oh, it's diversity of thought. So if you were a white man from rural America, and if you were a white man who was a vegan, and if you were a white man who was, you know, politically, you know, right of center, that was all considered diversity of thought. But academia's actually done that to a great extent. And I have been in this, you know, field long enough. I remember when the affirmative action rulings came down at the University of Michigan when I was there and how it overnight changed the enrollment of uh, University of Michigan. I mean, the fellowship I was on was expressly for underrepresented minority students. And the next year, white kids were getting that fellowship if they just said they were gonna study something diverse or if they were from the upper peninsula of Michigan. That counted as diversity. Well, I'm glad you brought up that last point because that's, I think, a question that a lot of people, myself included, have had about all of this, about the Supreme Court decisions, like how quickly is this gonna be implemented? Like, for instance, when we talk about climate change, you're still, I mean, obviously we're feeling the effects of it now. We just had the hottest day in 125,000 years last week. But still, the changes are, at least in, in, in a lot of places, are minimal enough, right? Where you could say, okay, we're not gonna see like a real, actual, like change of life sort of change for decades. But the affirmative action decision I guess doesn't necessarily follow that trend where it's something that we're going to see the effects of that in August, 
Yes, you are. And what's interesting is a lot of the attention and the face of affirmative action decisions is put on Ivy League and elite schools. So there are eight Ivy League schools, mm-hmm. and then there are the elites, right? The Stanfords, you know, um, the MITs, the you know, the Caltechs, et cetera. But we're talking about probably one percent of college students are enrolled at those schools, right? And those schools will find a way. They have, you know, the legal, you know, in-house legal counsel, powerhouse. They will find a way to to do what they want to do, right? To accomplish what they want, and they've always. You know, the reason that we have the original quota system in terms of the original affirmative action that these Ivy League schools really invented, it was an anti-Semitic affirmative action. So that, you know how when you apply for elite schools, many times you get sort of points for being from the interior of America, meaning not the coast? The reason for that is that they thought they were getting too many Jewish applicants. And so it's like, you know, we'll be known as a Jew school. So they were trying to dilute their Jewish population by taking white mids from the middle of the country. So that's the original sort of, you know, affirmative action is that white kids were getting points for just not being Jewish. So all that to say, those schools are really not the ground zero of this, right? Those are also private schools. They will find their way except for, you know, the Michigans of the world. But what's really going to happen is you will see pretty swiftly, this is not my first rodeo with this, My father, who is also a career higher ed administrator, this happened at the University of Kentucky. So this is not just about admissions. It's also about the programs that you're allowed to have and to fund Mm -hmm. in terms of creating uh, diversity or creating, you know, or, or at least addressing inequity within a population. So, yes, every time I have seen a back roll on policies that are about racial equity, the implementation was almost immediate, overnight. So at the University of Michigan, when I arrived at Michigan, Michigan in the 90s was famously like a, like it was almost achieving population parity in terms of like 13% black students, right? Mm -hmm. And that actually, this is important to understand, what we consider a school in terms of diversity only has to reflect the population. You don't have to have 50% black students. You only have to have 13%, right? You don't have to have, you know, 50% Latinx students. You only have to have 18%. That's population parity. Michigan in the 90s and the tail end of that when I got there in the about 2005 was famously like, a oh, like this is like a very, a space that you could find a critical mass of black people. That was because of policies in the 70s and 80s, very famously with the law school ruling and also the response to that by the university. There was a old white dude named uh, Duder, Duderstadt, president of the University of, I want to call him <laughs> Dumbledore, but I'm pretty sure that's Harry Potter. I feel like you're making that name up. Yeah, it was definitely <laughs> Professor Snape. Okay. And it was, <laughs> and and a House Gryffindor had decided that um that so the University of Michigan was again in the Supreme Court rulings about the Michigan Law School. So there's this old white guy engineer who was president of the university at the time, and he says, "Look, like you're, I'm an engineer, you got to explain things to me like with like data, right?" He says, "I don't." actually have an investment basically in like just you know diversity for diversity's sake like tell me this is beneficial for the university so there was this longitudinal study done of michigan law graduates by race law alumni and what they found is yes black students were getting into the law school with median 
lower LSAT scores, right? So they were sort of coming in under the median white LSAT scores. But it's a longitudinal study, so it looks at them 10, 15 years out of law school. And what they found was the black law students were cooking the white law students in terms of their accomplishments. And so Duderstadt was like, that's all I needed to know. We have fellowships now for black graduate students. And that's the, what I came in on. I had a fellowship called the Rackham Merit Fellowship that was for black, Latinx, and underrepresented people. So if you were, even if you were Asian and you were like in the humanities that was considered underrepresented. And that funded me throughout all the graduate school that, that made sure I didn't graduate with debt. That made the difference in my life. You made a point earlier about how so much attention is paid to the black students who are getting into schools, whose scores may be a point or two under mm -hmm. what the median score is, whatever, and not focusing as much on the other types of yes, the other types of people who are able to get into schools. We're talking legacy. Yes, we're talking you know the people who are rich, athletes being the number one. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to bring that up because. Yeah. Coming out of high school, yeah, I got recruited by some Ivies. Penn recruited me, I think, Princeton for a little bit, but Princeton was actually really good back then. And I had a great SAT score for a black athlete. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll just put it mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but my grades were shitty. My grades were not reflective of my test scores. So I had no business going to any of those schools, right? But because I was an athlete, I checked that box. Yes. And, you know, they would have been willing to willing to make some exceptions. Yes. Right? Yeah, in my in my, you know, decade plus of teaching, I will say that my observation of student aptitude, male athletes, I won't throw women athletes in there, but male athletes usually have the I would say my <laughs> lowest performing <laughs> students. I mean, some actually baffling, and I would say white male uh, athletes are top of that list. Mm. But what we have here, of course, is, you know, this is what the Varsity Blues scandal is about, was that knowing that the lowest SATs and GPAs for elite schools are for their athletes, and that athletes are overwhelmingly white, particularly when you're talking about D1 schools because they have so many athletic offerings, which that's the definition of a D1 school. So even though the sort of racist hysteria of athletes thinks, oh, athlete equals black, no, that's football, basketball, and track and field. Black people aren't out here playing uh, lacrosse last time I checked. There's a few. You know, the hockey team at BU is probably all white. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, the, the, if a D1 school has probably, what, 30, 40 athletic teams? Yeah, when people think about athletes, about college athletes, they're thinking about the athletes who generate revenue for the schools. And, exactly. Yeah, and those are, those are the football players and the basketball players. But the majority exactly. of college athletes are white. Overwhelmingly. Yeah, overwhelmingly. And majority. you have to go to a school that offers those kinds of sports programs, which means you're going to a school that's very well resourced, right? I, you know, I, I, every semester, you know, I teach race and ethnicity here at BU. And every semester, I open with explaining to my students the myth of scientific racism, the myth that sort of uh, there are genetic differences between the races. And that then we've used those types of myths to explain all types of things, like the myth that black people have some sort of athletic advantage, right? Which is also plays into affirmative action, the idea that black people are getting into college because they have some unfair advantage, right? But here's the thing, I always use, you know, the example of rowing. Crew is my favorite fucking sport. Let me tell you why. Of like the six bougiest things I've heard in the last <laughs> year, 
You said three of them. Like I, I let I let your intro go. I let your intro about being in the Berkshires, Berkshires, however the fuck you pronounce that go. You know, about being yes. like part of like some Du Bois legacy yes, yes. situation. Yes. And now you're talking about cruise your favorite sport. Because I live basically on the Charles River, which if you knew crew, if you had your country club boat shoes on now, you would know that the head of the Charles is one of the most important races in the world. So once a year in the fall, crew teams, both collegiate, club sports, any level of crew comes to compete on the Charles River. I watch this every year. And you know why I watch it? because no one has ever rode their way out of the south side of Chicago. Crew is proof that talent is socially constructed because it's not something you can have individual sort of talent in, right? You have to go to a high school that offers that program or go to a school. You have to have access to clean water so there can't be environmental racism. You have to have access to the actual expense of the sport itself. You have to, you know, where I live, there are boathouses lining the river. You have to live in a place that has those types of resources and be a person who has access to those resources. That's why I love crew, because the idea of spotting someone's individual crew talent, like I just saw them, you know, Cabrini Green Projects, and I knew he could <laughs> row. Like, that, that doesn't happen. <laughs> I, you know what? I, I, appreciate, I appreciate your rigorous deconstruction of the racial dynamics and crew as a way to justify your interest in it. Like, I do appreciate, <laughs> you know what I mean, you trying to throw me off the bougie scent by, like, having some actual data and be like, you know, this is proof yes. environmental racism. They don't have yes. access to water. You know yes. what I mean? Because you can find big niggas anywhere, but a big niggas who can roll crew. So again, I, I appreciate all yes. of the work that you did to try to throw people off your scent. It's also fascinating because crew also, there's just like the golf caddy can be the least athletic person in the world. And I remember when I was teaching in Michigan, mm -hmm. there were these white boys in my class and they said, oh yeah, we're here on a caddy scholarship. They got four years free of college for being golf caddies. Caddies, as in you pick the nine iron. Mm. All that to say, crew, similarly, there is a position called the coxswain. Now, I am a sixth grade boy, so the, I am giggling every time I say coxswain. But a coxswain is just a small person who can yell really well. And you're yelling on beat. You're, you, so a coxswain keeps the tempo of the of the crew they're not doing any actual work so lorenz tate could have been a coxswain yo had lorenz tate not been from the <laughs> south side of chicago okay he could have been a coxswain. he would have been a coxswain right yeah. like half these rappers cisco these little ra cisco could have been a coxswain half these little rappers these little what mm -hmm. what jay cole say you know you you standing next to six four rappers <laughs> they could have been so a, really a coxswain is just the rare white person who has rhythm, who can sit on the, you know, what not the bow of the boat, what's the opposite of the bow, who can actually sit there and keep rhythm for the team and speed you up. You're like a human, um, you know, the piano. Uh, what a conductor. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But those people get four year rides. Okay. They don't have, they don't have to have an ounce of physical athletic ability. But these are the things it's like, so when we talk about black people, Funny enough, the sports that we're typically competing in are kind of the most competitive in terms of the funnel 
it takes to get a D1 scholarship. But what Varsity Blues really found out is that, you know, if you're doing water polo and, you know, all the crew and all these other things and, you know, and archery and there's not actually a huge sort of funnel system for those sports. So they were just, you know, they could make up that their kid, you know, played water polo. That was the point, you know. Well, I think, you know, the thing that that gets to the heart of this entire conversation is and I used to bring up Abigail Fisher as an mm, example oh, of this it. because yes. I feel like she is like prime, you know, a example of yeah. this anxiety that some white people have when they learn that they are in fact Wonder Bread, when they've been told their entire life that they were pancakes. Absolutely. And so it's like, you know, I don't want to be Wonder Bread. I don't want to be mediocre. I don't want to be average. You know, there must be something wrong with the system. Yeah. Not something wrong with me. If all these other people, you know, are getting opportunities, I'm a pancake. I'm delicious. I'm a pancake. <laughs> you know what I mean? I have stores, restaurants named after me. I'm a motherfucking waffle. I might even be a funnel cake. I'm not Wonder Bread. I'm not a <laughs> slice of Wonder Bread. I'm a motherfucking yeah. waffle. I am French toast and i mean like bodega wonder bread like got delivered like two weeks yeah ago. you're the you're the wonder yeah. bread that you know is in the deli and the cat's been sitting on it for the last two weeks yes it's like it's a cat bed it's the bed for the bodega cat right that's the wonder bread that you are and the thing is there's nothing wrong with being wonder bread right we use wonder right. bread for sandwiches there's nothing wrong being mediocre but what's wrong is when you feel like the whole bodega must be wrong yeah what's wrong is when you think that your status is like this god-given yeah you know sort of right that you haven't earned i also like to remind people that higher ed you know it was never meant to be this equalizing type of institution right so you know in our lifetimes when we were born there were ivy leagues that were still all male right columbia didn't go co-ed until the early 1980s we're talking about a system that was literally designed to give particularly wealthy white men a system onto themselves, right? A system for dominating the world onto themselves. And it was never meant for anyone else, right? So they literally, you know, and I'm not just talking about elite schools. It's funny, even occasionally some very successful white guy entrepreneur will admit sort of how he was a beneficial of white guy affirmative action, right? There's a great book by Ira Katz Nelson called When Affirmative Action Was White. It talks about federal redlining. It talks about the GI Bill. There are schools, so UCLA, which we think of as being this elite school now, probably has, what, an 8-9% acceptance rate, probably even lower than that. We think of these as being like gold star schools now. But if you went to UCLA in the 70s and 80s, they had a 70% admissions rate, mostly because it was just for white kids, right? It was, they had small numbers of students of color, but overwhelmingly, mm -hmm. we're talking about those who benefited from GI Bill. These public institutions, they expanded higher ed to make sure that white guys, particularly white men with GI Bills, had places to be educated, right? So it is funny how even these stories of meritocracy that white men tell themselves, when you really look at it, it's like, is it really meritocracy if you only had to compete against George W. Bush to get into Yale? Like, is that actual meritocracy? Meritocracy is one of those made up terms like it really um, is like even like being apolitical like I, I was teaching a workshop uh, a couple weeks ago and I think that was one of the questions or maybe that was one of the topics and yes you know just brought up the fact that 
being apolitical is a fallacy, particularly a person of color, a black person being apolitical because of your very existence. Yeah, it's a political act, absolutely. And also being apolitical is an aspiration. Thinking that as like an editorial aspiration is also fucked up because what it is is actually a white male. Absolutely. When we think of an apolitical perspective, it is a white male perspective. So it's not even apolitical. So so the, the term itself is a fake term. It's very much as claiming you're colorblind, right? Yeah. Julian Bond told us, you know, you can't be blind to color because that would be being blind to the consequences of color, mm. right? Um, you know, but meritocracy as a term was invented by Alexis de Tocqueville, a Frenchman who writes Democracy in America. So Alexis de Tocqueville comes to the States after the Revolutionary War. Historians don't clobber me. I believe it's like early 19th century. All right, two to six historians that are listening. <laughs> right, right. Please do not email me. Exactly. <laughs> Please don't do that. She just got tenure. She just got tenure. Right. You know, historians be gang gang. Like, I don't want to get jumped by historians. It happens to me a lot. So all that to say, Alexis de Tocqueville writes this classic canonized text called Democracy in America, mm -hmm. in which he is studying this new, you know, America is the oldest democracy in the world. The United States is. I don't want the South Americans to also jump me. Like, we're America too. The United States is the oldest democracy in the world, but it doesn't mean it's the best. And so Alexis de Tocqueville is going across this country, what is, you know, not yet all the contiguous uh, 50 states. And he says, oh, he actually uses it. He invents the term meritocracy because he's trolling the United States. He says, instead of an aristocracy, these people have convinced themselves they have a meritocracy. It was meant to be a, a pejorative term. Mm -hmm. But Americans were like, yeah, that's what we got, a meritocracy. <laughs> he always meant it as an indictment of the U.S.'s culture, that they believe that instead of, you know, aristocracy is very transparent. You know, God told me that I have divine blood and therefore I can, you know, beat you over with the hammer and sentence you to death to preserve that, right? Mm -hmm. Aristocracy is just maintained by violence and an ideology about divinity meritocracy is also maintained by violence, but it's a it's an ideology about worth. Sada Grundy, thank you for joining us today. And again, you know, I, I know that with all the changes with affirmative action, you're gonna be out on the street. Yes. Um, so if you need a place to crash. Yes, I have an OnlyFans already. <laughs> I'm not saying you can come here. I'm not saying you can come here, but I know people there are Airbnbs in our neighborhood yes. that you could mm -hmm. you could stay at if you mm -hmm. you know if you need some help. We need like hostels for like black faculty now, like <laughs> not youth <laughs> hostels, but like faculty hostels. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, Sai's coming back. She's joining us. She's still here for Dear Damon. But first, Damon hates. This Damon hates his mouth fault. I'll admit that from the beginning. Okay, no one else takes the blame here but me for not paying closer attention. So anyway, 4th of July, I did not celebrate, but I did decide to grill because it was warm outside, which was not celebration. It was just grilling because it's warm outside. 
All right. So I grilled some meat, burgers, hot dogs, whatever. And after spending all that time on the grill, you know, my whole body just smelled like smoke. And so when I took a shower that night, I shampooed because my hair smelled like smoke too. Now, I just got my hair done, I guess maybe like five or six days before that. So my hair was still looking kind of like the way it was when it was done. It was looking, you know, the way I wanted to. But after I washed my hair, my hair completely changed the composition where it didn't look bad, but it didn't look the way that I wanted it to look. And this is a thing that I feel like black people, particularly black women who have certain types of hair and have gotten their hair done, have been very mindful of and very cognizant of, like, you know, when you get your hair wet, this might happen. So if you get your hair wet, you need to prepare for it. You need to do that. And I was unprepared, <laughs> right? Completely unprepared. <laughs> and so my hair ended up doing something that I didn't want it to do. And now again, I've been growing locks for, I guess it's been about six or seven months now. There's a particular look that I wanted to have. I did not have that look anymore. And so that weekend, I ended up going to a birthday party in DC with my hair the way that, it, again, it doesn't look bad, but it's not the way that I wanted to look. But because it didn't look the way I wanted to look, I wore a hat the entire time. And so I was a nigga in the indoor party with the hat on the entire time. And again, maybe that wouldn't have happened if I'd have just been more cognizant if I would listened, if I paid more attention <laughs> to all of the discourse about what happens to hair when you get it wet, but because my hair had always been short, I didn't pay that close attention. So again, this is my own fault. And so this Damon hates is directed at me hating myself for not listening. Couldn't get rid of Sia Grundy, <laughs> right? So she decided to stay with us for Dear Damon. So Sia, what's good? What's going on? I am still, yes. <laughs> still here? I am still here. <laughs> so Sia, what bouginess have you gotten yourself into <laughs> since we last spoke? Well, there's future bouginess. So yes, the Berkshire's bougie has concluded. Oh, there's also future rationness. I am going to see Usher this weekend. Okay, okay. Well, speaking of Usher, Morgan, the producer, What's happening in the world this week that we need to answer questions about? Dear Damon, men are getting dragged on the internet this week. It's nothing new. But everyone's talking about Kiki Palmer's baby dad. I'm not a fool. I keep my opinions about my relationship off the internet. So please don't throw things at me. But what exactly is wrong with what man said? Please help me understand. I'm open to that. I love this question. Why do you love this question, Sayada? I love this question because, like, if you wanted to have, like, a feminist teaching, it would be for a question like this. Okay. Expound. So let's explain first to folks what is happening here. I'll give a quick context. So Kiki Palmer was at a Usher show a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And she had some cheekage, not the full cheek out, but had some cheeks showing. She had a dress that had an overlayer of lace. Yes. The cheeks weren't present, but they weren't implied. So there's the, the space between... <laughs> present and implied, right? She's just having a good time at the Usher show. Yes, she was having a great time. And so her baby daddy, who's, it's crazy because like, this nigga's name has been in the news. 
I have not even bothered to remember it. A man has no name. No one knows his name. <laughs> like, I know he's related to the nigga from Insecure. I'll even share, full disclosure, even while I'm recording this right now, we pause for a second. One of our producers, Ryan Wallerson, mentioned his actual name, this guy's name. I don't give a fuck. Like, I forgot it already. I still don't remember it. Absolutely. <laughs> he said this shit to me 30 seconds ago. I already have my mind made up not to say his name, but and then I forgot it that quickly. He would be great in witness protection because no one will remember this nigga. <laughs> so anyway, he's at home and he tweets something about standards and I'm a traditional man for not wanting my woman to be out there with her ass cheeks out. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but this was the gist of what he's saying. And then it became like a thing on the internet where, you know, some niggas, you know, particularly hotep niggas and hotep adjacent niggas took sides and were like, you know what, well... Yeah. Why can't a man have a standard for his significant other? Why can't a man say that he's not comfortable with his woman dressing this way or acting this way around another man? Like, what's wrong with that? Men who drive their girlfriend's Nissan Altima with the Delta tags on the on the license who literally uh, have never made more than their woman got a lot to say. Those are always the men who double down on this I'm a man shit. But what kicked this off was that because Kiki is Black America's little sister and because she's famous, mm -hmm. there was footage of her from the concert because Usher was showing her particular love. As he does, Usher often entertains women celebrities at his shows because it's Usher. He's like, he's our Teddy Pendergrass. When this was getting retweeted, for some reason, man who has no name decided that he was going to put simply you're a mother. I'm sort of correcting her behavior. That again, these are videos of her being, you know, swooning, being serenaded by Usher in her body conforming dress with this lace overlay, but not like a really tacky dress, particularly by Vegas standards, it was pretty much a burka, right? Mm. And he just simply <laughs> tweets. Vegas burka. <laughs> it's a Vegas burka. <laughs> he, because really it wasn't like that revealing. He tweets, you're a mother as though he is correcting her visual display of fun, sexuality, et cetera. And I think that is what pissed so many people off across multiple layers. So one layer is, you know, there are some people who say, you know, maybe you do have a right to, you know, take issue with what your woman is wearing, but you do it in private. So some people are just upset by the public correcting of her, which I think is fair. And there are some people who are upset by the correcting of her at all, this idea that, Motherhood negates sexuality, which again, classic feminist teaching moment. And then there's the whole like meta angle too, where it's like, yo, this nigga is talking about he is a traditional. Yeah, he kept going. Man with traditional standards, but he's a male concubine. Like he is not the, like you can't pick and choose. Like tradition is not a buffet yeah. that you could just pick. Like, you know what I want? I don't want the general so shrimp. Yeah, right. So give me the broccoli, give me the chow mein, give me the rice. Yeah. No, you got to take all of it. Like if you want to be the traditional nigga, you got to take everything on the traditional nigga buffet plate. Right. And I would say 100% of men claiming that traditional alpha male shit do not meet any of the criteria of it. And as someone who has 
dated uh, many a uh, quote unquote high value man, they do not talk like this about women, nor do they think like this about women. I think that it's one of them situations where people don't necessarily care as much about Kiki or about the unnamed, the nigga with no name, but it's more about, you know, I, I think there is this, this ongoing shift, zeitgeisty <laughs> shift, where more and more men are finding themselves in this position, mm -hmm. right? Where they are not the breadwinners. They are not the star of the relationship. They are not the ones who are providing protection or providing, yes. you know, or providing the things that, again, the quote unquote traditional male, you know, in a hetero relationship was expected to provide. And so it's like, so if I'm not doing any of these things, mm -hmm. what am I doing? Mm -hmm. Who am I in this relationship? I think we have to remember that for so many men, the bar for their fathers and grandfathers was on the floor in terms of what garnered you a long-term relationship. So literally just being a wage earner, and I'm talking about, you know, making uh, grocery bagging wages, that was enough, literally adjusted for inflation, that was enough to warrant like, oh, you know, you can have a long-term marriage. You didn't have to do co-parenting. You didn't have to, you know, cook anything. You didn't have to do any domestic labor. You didn't have to do any care labor. And so what I always say about, you know, this resentment that we see from young men is it's growing. It's not our imagination. There really is sort of this very internet-y niche that is a backlash of men for whom I always say these are men who cannot update their iOS. That if women are providing for themselves financially, if women don't have to get married, if women can marry other women, if women don't need a man to have a child because that's far less destigmatized and we also have, you know, technologies and availabilities. Mm. If marriage is shifting from an economic institution to a almost purely emotional contract, then these are men who emotionally can't cut it. And they are resentful against women. And if you are, you know, on the internet, you've heard a really disparaging disdain for black women. Basically, anything black women do is wrong. If you're a single mother, if you are a black woman who has multiple degrees, it's the worst thing in the world because you know you you know you're masculine. Then basically, you have men for whom their only sense of manhood is what they can actually negate and have disdain for in femininity, right? So their only sense of manhood is what they can actually make defective about women. Yeah, I mean, and that's a good point. When this issue comes up, there's always like the response is like, yo, there are women who are pick -me's. It's like, why don't the quote unquote, the niggas who think that they're the traditional alpha, whatever, just find the women who are looking exactly for that. And they do. And the thing is, well, they do, but then there's also, that's not what they want. They want to find someone to control and to basically break. And this is not about partner selection. This is about a larger sense of male dominance. You know, we see this across, you know, political data. We see this in a lot of interviews that, you know, that breachers like myself do with black men. There is, and this is not all black men. It's just alarming that there's a growing, it's like, it's like MAGA is not all white people. It's just alarming that it's there, right? Yeah. There definitely is this cohort, particularly of young-ish black men. So we're talking about black men under 50, who have created basically a new misogynoir, right? An idea that they have these sort of tropes of black women that even things like we, you know, we were wondering why Trump doubled his numbers with black men versus Romney. The reason for that was in part 
because they were a growing group of black men who felt that the Democratic Party paid too much attention to black women. Is that most, not the most fuck shit you ever heard in your life? Now, there was a really long and in-depth article that came out about this topic. We're recording this on a Wednesday. This article was published July 10th in the Washington Post of um, Christina Emba. And the piece is called Men Are Lost. Here's a map out of the wilderness. And mm-hmm. it's basically just a deconstruction of like, okay, so you have these young men who are rudderless, who are anchorless, who are on the internet, <laughs> and they are becoming isolated. They're becoming violent, even more isolated, even more violent. Mm-hmm. And so how do you fix this? And the author, you know, made a good point is that one of the reasons why so many of these men are gravitating, and this is a race neutral thing, and one of the reasons why so many of these men are gravitating to the right yeah. is that the people on the right are the only ones that are actually providing a blueprint. Now, it's a fucked up blueprint, but they're giving something. Yeah. Uh-huh. Whereas more progressive spaces aren't really, it's like, I don't, I don't know, figure it out, you're a man. I think this is where she oversells the right. I actually think that the right is just providing a return to segregation, white dominance, male dominance. Let's let's not act like the right is that sophisticated. And she makes that point in the piece. I'm not saying that she doesn't say that the right is doing it right. What she's saying is the right is, is giving them something, even though that something is toxic and regressive, but they're giving them something tangible. And again, it's a really, really great article, I think. And it, gets to the meat of this issue about, you know, yeah, in a perfect world, we want these men to be progressive. We want them to have empathy. We want them to be great citizens. We want them mm-hmm. to to think of the greater good, right? But if that's not happening, mm-hmm. right, if this disconnect exists, and there are some very real reasons for that, you know, very real world, you know, loss of certain types of industries, women outpacing men and, and everywhere, Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Neoliberalism. Right. And so how do we fix it? Because, again, this is mm-hmm. just going to lead to more incels, more danger, more violence, more yeah. niggas acting out this way. And it's like, I don't want this to continue. Yes. And for the record, we are not saying that Kiki uh, Palmer's nameless partner is an incel or is uh, going to the next MAGA rally. But there is a continuum. He has some incel adjacency. Like, I mean, he has some of the language. Oh, I, so I never really followed his feed. He, I mean, if you actually, and you know, Twitter did his thing. Like, after he decided he wanted to be a main character, they went back and saw that he is a Trump supporter, that he's a, Shut rape, the ap- hell he's up. a rape apologist. Like, all, all, a lot of Shut stuff. Shut the hell yeah. up. So all that stuff is out there. Um. So, you know, this, well, this is also interesting because, you know, I think that part of the way that I see uh, the world, and probably this is part of my sort of feminist ideology, is that certain types of behaviors, expressions, sort of come in these suites, right? So, for example... Violence against women is a canary in a coal mine for feminists in terms of like violence against women is, is it means you're going to have other types of violence, right? We say that violence against women isn't some sort of cute niche sort of domestic violence, like a domesticated cat. 
that it is the expression of violence. So remember the Pulse nightclub shooting, you have a young man who had beaten his partner many, many times. Yeah. Um, the Boston Marathon, you have a young man who had all sorts of uh, recorded incidents of violence against his wife, right? Mm -hmm. So when we hear expressions of ideologies that are particularly misogynistic, particularly anti-feminist, particularly have expressed this sort of disdain for women, we always say that's on a continuum of other types of resentments, other sort of a politics of resentment, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very easy canary in that coal mine for us to say, oh, there's a sort of, not necessarily a horseshoe politics, but there's sort of a gateway drug of, oh. No one just stops at hating women. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And, you know, I think what's particularly alarming, you know, as we're discussing this cohort of young men, and our interest, of course, is, you know, always been in young black men, that they're absolutely part of the draw to the right. I mean, as we, you know, discussed, is that the right is violent. The right is so, you know, it's, it, you know about controlling women. Um, and that Trump himself presents this like, you know, you ever hear those dudes who are like, you know, you can't even say hi to a woman anymore. You can say hi, just maybe don't take your dick out, right? <laughs> it's like you have these men who feel that Trump is somehow a return to normalcy, right? When men could just be men, meaning not be held accountable for any behavior. And, and the thing with Trump too, and this is something that I think we have to actually like, okay, I was doing a deep dive on like old Wu-Tang, you know, I created a playlist. Beautiful. This is about three weeks ago where I just put a whole bunch of Wu tracks on. It's like maybe 200 track deep because Wu was very prolific in her prime. And so I was listening to Method Man's second album, T2 Judgment Day. Yeah. You know, and there's a whole nother segment about how Meth ended up becoming the most famous person in the Wu when he had the worst soul albums. But that's, again, that's another. But he has the most star power. Let's keep it above. He has the most star power and charisma. Yeah, he, he does. Okay. Yeah, he really does. And so that album is full of skits. As I remember. Uh-huh. As rap albums in like the late 90s, early aughts used to be. One of those skits features Donald Trump. <gasps> actual Trump. And not like a recording of Donald Trump. Yeah. But Donald Trump actually calling in, asking Method Man when he's going to release his album, right? Trump was down with Def Jam because he was down with Russell Simmons. And the thing is, it's like, even though Trump's, you know, racism and misogyny were well known mm -hmm. before he ran for office. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. He was popular among niggas. And this was before The Apprentice. So this, you can't even blame The Apprentice for that popularity. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I would say coming out of the 80s, Trump is most popular amongst young men who want to be rich. <laughs> that is like his base, right? Any douchey white dude from, you know, New Jersey or, you know, LA, what have you, Trump was one of their heroes. In fact, there was this in the golden era of Tumblr, there used to be this Tumblr that was like, who said it, like rapper or Republican? Mm -hmm. um, and it was like, it also included like these like sort of very Trumpy quotes. I mean, look, you know, it, you'd be hard pressed to find wealthy rappers who didn't have some sort of Trump line in their lyrics at some point, right? Because he also was the icon of wealth coming out of the 80s, which is funny because it, that was like totally made up, right? He had had, you know, several bankruptcies. And I think that the reason that he was so Trump popular among, you know, young black men is because he was so nigger rich, right? Like Trump is what niggas think rich men should be doing, which is being <laughs> ostentatious, you know, gold plate everything. Trump is like, he is the ultimate nigger rich. 
<laughs> I think that was racist, but you know, we'll let it, we'll let it slide. Unless <laughs> <laughs> your racism <laughs> slide. You know, one of my best insults is, you know, so and so is what a dumb person thinks a smart person is, right? Yeah. Trump is what a poor person thinks a rich person is. And and again, there's this model of masculinity, like the hyper masculine, unapologetic, hyper virile, has their way with women, no accountability. Yes. No accountability, absolutely. That too many of us find attractive. Anything is, I'm not absolving myself mm-hmm. from this either, because there are not not necessarily with Trump, yeah, but there are parts of like this hyper masculinity or whatever that that are alluring, that are sexy, that are attractive, right? And again, the question remains: It's like again, what's his name? That the nigga who's the baby daddy who we refuse to name. He's a red herring. But that sort of state of mind, it's like, and I guess this gets back to the question, it's like, what do we do to kind of shift it or reverse it or subvert it? Because when you see so many young men being attracted to it. Um, One of the other things that Kiki Palmer's nameless partner and Trump also have in common, Trump has expressed that he cannot be attracted to a woman once she's had children, including his own spouses. This is what feminists have often called a virgin whore complex. We've used that terminology in our scholarship, in our writing for some decades. And what that means is that part of how misogyny operates is the compartmentalization of women. We call it virgin whore complex because it's a reference to, in literature, and narratives, and cultural imagery, and religion, you have the virgin idea of a woman, so your mother is this sexless uh, you know, uh, notion of a woman. We take that virgin literally from the Virgin Mary, this woman who produces a child, this you know, God child, without ever having sex, right? We never see Mary in any sort of idea of, of herself separate from this child. Her only existence is to care for this child. And then we have the whore complex, which also comes from biblical text, meaning that in the Bible, or at least in our interpretations of biblical text, because we take it out of the context historically, we're anachronistic, that's what it is. All that to say, often in our Western reading of the Bible, we punish women who are whores. So we punish women who express vanity. We punish women who control their own sexuality or their own bodies, right? So Jezebel's punished, you know, um, you know, isn't she eaten, you know, she's torn apart by dogs. All that to say, this idea, even though it comes from literature, is often really recognizable in how men think about women, right? So, you know, you'll get a dude who's like, you know, I can never disrespect a woman. I love my mother. You put your mother in a different category, right? Oftentimes, men, like white people, have no problem seeing women in their families, right? It's like, it's like you know, their idea of respect of women extends to like women who are their relatives. Just like white people be like, you know, I don't have a problem you know, with black people, I got a black friend. But their idea of women as a category is not really, you know, they have a problem registering women who don't say something about them in terms of their relation. So what we have here is a classic case of someone who says that a mother is a different category of woman. And a mother as a category of woman no longer has herself. A mother, every decision she makes, every behavior is an expression of caring for this child. Of motherhood, yeah. It's one of the things that even, you know, with having children, and I'm considerably older now, 
when they first had me. And I'm just thinking about how, like, as a kid, mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily think of my parents having, like, an interiority. I thought of them as being my parents. And, like, that was their focus. That was their goal. Absolutely. That was their purpose, you know, in life is to raise me and to be mom and dad. And so, mm-hmm. again, I have kids now. And, yes, I love my kids. And my kids are a huge part of my life. But they're not the whole thing. They're not, they're not my wife's whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so this idea, this Madonna horror complex thing, it's just, a, it's a very like infantile way of trying to, I guess, flatten any sort of nuance, flatten any sort of personality, because you can't expand past that five-year-old who thinks that mommy's only purpose yeah. is to make sure that you're fed and safe and comfortable and, and that mommy doesn't actually have goals and desires and dreams and a life of her own. And it says that a woman's identity is made up of her relationship to something else, right? Her relationship to a male spouse, her relationship to children. That there is no sort of idea of a woman having her own identity, her own stakes, that your value in that woman is only as much as she serves your relationship. That's what we mean by, you know, by men be like, like, I was raised by a single mom. You know, I can never disrespect women. No, you only see your mother as relationship to you, right? She pours your cereal and makes your breakfast and apparently, you know, uh, teaches you how to fold a, a flat sheet, right? That She's only in relationship to you do you value your mother. These men would be, you know, the same kind of men would be outraged if their mother had some life of their own. You know, they'd be like... This nigga doing. These are the men who, you know, resent anyone their mother dates. Oh, what's she doing listening to Usher? Right. Going to see Little Mermaid. She used to be listening to audiobooks about how to be a mom. <laughs> she doing listening to confession. Right. What she got to confess right. other than how much she loved me. But it is like a really um it's a keystone in the bigger house construction of misogyny. It's a really fundamental keystone and misogyny, as we discussed is a great keystone in other types of political ideologies that are really harmful. Sayada Grundy, thank you for coming back. Thank you. Stuck with Damon Young, we all, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. It's not always a pleasure. Occasionally it's a pleasure. Sometimes it's like pulling teeth. It's not always a pleasure. Yeah. Other times it's like, uh, this nigga here, I guess, he's just <laughs> taking up space. It's, yeah, laborious. Absolutely. So, but this time, it was in the vicinity of pleasure. <laughs> this time it was a pleasure. <laughs> So I appreciate (laughs) you at least making that effort. Of course. (laughs) It was glad to be back. (laughs) All right. All right, Derek. All right, bye. Again, I just want to thank the homie side Grunny for coming through both segments. She's a trooper. She got stamina. Great conversations, both sides, both ends. Great guest, great friend. And again, you can listen to Stuck With Damon Young on any platform, anywhere that you can find podcasts, you can find us. But if you happen to be on Spotify and you happen to be on the Spotify app, please do the interactive questionnaires and questions and answers. It's just a lot of fun in there. So go ahead and check that out on the app. And again, if you have any question whatsoever about anything under the sun, hit me up at Damon at crooked.com. All right, y'all. See you next week. Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me, Damon Young. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Kendra James and Madeline Herringer. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing and mastering by Sarah Gibble-Laska 
and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme music and score by Taka Yasuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. And from Spotify, our executive producers are Lauren Silverman, Neil Drumming, and Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Leslie Guam and Crystal Hall Stressler.